You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is Zach, and I'm the youth director here. Um, I'm excited to be up here this morning uh, as we jump into a new series, as Alex said, uh, called Home for Christmas. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving, ate a lot of food, got to relax a little bit, hang out with family and friends. Um, but I'm excited about this Christmas season. Uh, here in Tallahassee at City Church with the Home for Christmas online stream next Sunday. It's going to be awesome and looking forward to that. You may be wondering why I have a whiteboard up here. I'm not going to tell you to build the suspense, so you'll just have to uh, uh, be looking forward to that. We're going to do some math problems, I think, later on. Um, But a few years ago, I read this book uh, titled A God-Sized Vision, and it was co-authored by two guys by the name of Colin Hansen and John Woodbridge. And the story told of the many, many great revival stories that have happened in this world over the last couple hundred years. And it told of individual uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who were faithful to the calling of evangelism in their life, both in their city and also throughout the world. And I mean, it's chocked full of awesome stories of faithful Christians, but a few of the more gripping stories were of people like Dr. Joe Church, who led both mission or medical and evangelical mission trips in Africa. He's known as the pioneer of mission work in Rwanda, and he either had a direct hand in or, or discipled somebody who had a direct hand in planting over 300 village churches in his ministry. Or guys like R.A. Hardy, who spent many years in the early 1900s evangelizing and preaching in Korea. Uh, he was a catalyst for a revival over there called the Wonsan Revival, where in an eight-year period from 1901 to 1909, there were almost 100,000 Korean converts that became believers in the Lord. Or like Alex Scott said this morning, uh, and many of you may be familiar with this name, Lottie Moon, who spent nearly 40 years teaching and evangelizing in China. And because of her legacy, over 1.8 billion dollars have been collected for mission work around the world. I think we can look at these people's lives and see God working through their ministries, right? These people, these brothers and sisters, they were bold in their faith. They took every opportunity to share Christ with others, and then they trusted that God would see them through. And these people, these are people that we can look up to, that we can be encouraged by, we can emulate, we can praise And if you look at these guys' lives and these ladies' lives and even missionaries right now, we can see common threads that run deep in their life, in their ministry. They rejoice in the good news of the gospel, right? They're moved by the gospel, moved to act. They understand the serious danger of never coming to know the Lord, right? They're having this eternal mindset. And then they take the Great Commission very seriously, So today we're going to spend a lot of our time looking at Matthew 9, a commission for us as believers to be missionally minded. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew 9. Uh, It's going to be 35 through 38. It's the last section of chapter 9. It's called, uh, it's titled Lord of the Harvest. It'll also be on the screen. And so I'm going to start reading Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, 
because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to come and worship you. Uh, We thank you for the scripture that you've given us, and we pray that as we dive in today that you would speak through me. We pray that you would open all of our eyes and all of our uh, uh, hearts and minds to um, we'd be able to see what you want us to see and learn what you want us to learn, God, and that we would be encouraged to go out and tell about you. Uh, We love you and thank you for everything you've given us. In your name I pray. Amen. In the first few chapters in Matthew, before chapter 9, we kind of get this firsthand account of Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, We see in, starting in chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, Chapters 5 through 7, it's the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It's just packed full of Jesus' teachings. We see Jesus perform miracles in chapters 8 and 9, things like uh, healing the sick, driving out demons, calming the seas. Then here in Matthew 9, verses 35 that we just read, it gives kind of this overall account of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we see Matthew highlight three characteristics of the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. Let's read 35 again. Three key characteristics of Jesus' ministry. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Teaching, preaching, and healing are highlighted here by Matthew. And so for teaching throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus teach scriptures to the crowds, bringing light to Old Testament passages, explaining the meaning of verses, applying the teachings to his hearers' everyday lives. Then Matthew also highlights Jesus' evangelistic ministry. In 35, it says, telling the good news of the kingdom. We see Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecies. We see him proclaim uh, a rightfully claim his divine nature as God's son, see him forgive sins, and implore his listeners to put their trust in God. And then finally, Matthew highlights an aspect of Jesus' ministry that maybe many of us in, in this room are familiar with, and that is the healing of many people with a variety of physical ailments. So teaching, preaching, healing are three of the many characteristics of Jesus' ministry on earth. And as you can probably imagine, these bold statements that Jesus is making, right? These gripping, life-changing teachings that he's orating and these miraculous miracles that he's performing probably attracted a massive crowd of people. I mean, I've seen like really bad street performers attract hundreds in New York. Like, can you imagine the crowd that Jesus, the one who's claiming to be the son of God, the man who is healing the blind, driving out demons, telling the lame to get up and walk. Can you imagine what he was drawing? I mean, biblical scholars believe that there were upwards of like 200 towns around this area that Jesus' ministry in chapter 9. I mean, this probable massive, massive size of the crowd is what makes verse 36 that much more powerful to me. Verse 36 when he saw the crowds, he's probably elevated somewhere, and he looks out and he sees the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? He looks up and sees this massive crowd in front of him, 
and he feels compassion for them. And why compassion? Well, it says because they were distressed and dejected. Then Matthew says, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees them as lost, as wandering, as vulnerable, as hopeless people. I think Jesus right here doesn't feel compassion. He's not moved by their physical condition. He feels compassion because he knows of their spiritual condition. He looks out and sees people that are lost, that are trapped in their sin, that have no hope of eternal life in heaven apart from him. And I think one thing we can learn from this verse is while, like, yes, Jesus does care about our physical condition. He proves this by healing many people in his ministry. God blesses us with medicines, blesses us with uh, doctors, with modern technology. But Jesus is more concerned about our spiritual condition. Those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior are destined for eternal life apart from him. And this is more disastrous than any physical issue we may encounter on earth. In this reality, when Jesus looks out in the crowd, it causes him to feel compassion because he sees their hopeless state without him. And then at the end of that verse, the, the phrase, sheep without a shepherd, um, that's one that many of us have read before. It's, that uh, analogy is uh, spread many times throughout the Bible. Ezekiel 34, that whole chapter is about uh, the sheep and the shepherd. Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6, we like sheep have gone astray. John 10, 11, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. This analogy that we are like sheep, right? Think about a sheep. No offense to sheep, but they're helpless. They're wanderers. They're weak in need of a savior, in need of protection, in need of an overseer. Is a visual that scripture uses many, many times throughout the Bible. And as our great shepherd, Jesus provides the protection, provides the guidance, provides the care and the sacrifice that we all desperately, desperately need. And then Jesus ends this section in verses 37 and 38 with the charge to his disciples. Right? These disciples are the 12 followers that have been uh, with Jesus uh, throughout his ministry. Jesus has been intentional about pouring into them. They followed Jesus. They probably sat around a campfire with Jesus. They shared meals with Jesus, and he's been personally teaching them, personally correcting and encouraging them. So these are like his followers. He turns and he says to them, not the entire crowd, he turns to his followers and says to them in verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I mean, we see this exact same command in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus summons his followers to go, right? To go into this great harvest of people who don't know him. I mean, I can just picture Jesus, you know, going up and kind of looking at his massive crowd and just feeling compassion for them and then looking at his disciples behind him and saying, hey, you see all those people, you see the harvest, like, go into the harvest and tell of the great shepherd. I think we can look at these, uh, these verses and take three practical things from this text, things that we see Jesus do that we should do our very best to duplicate. And the first one is to see the condition of the lost. I think great questions we can ask ourselves are, 
Do we see the world through the eyes of Jesus? Do we see those who don't know Jesus? Do we have compassion for them? Are our hearts moved by the reality of their spiritual condition? I mean, Jesus in Matthew 9.36 shows us what it means to be missionally minded. Then he shows us what distress and dejection looks like. It looks like a life of running after uh, pleasures, pursuits, and people, thinking that we can be satisfied apart from God. We can't. Jesus knows that. Every road, the satisfaction that this world offers ultimately comes up empty. Jesus knows that. And he sees these crowds in Matthew. He sees people today. And he sees their desperate need for Jesus as their merciful shepherd. And because of this reality, we should be moved to act. The second thing I think we can see uh, Jesus do and command that we can duplicate is, uh, is to pray. Jesus beckons us to pray. I mean, he says in verse 38, right? He says, uh, where is it? Oh, my Bible turned the page on me. Okay, there we go. In verse 38, okay, 37, he says, then he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Harvest is a lot of harvest, few workers. And he says, therefore, so because of that statement right there, because of that, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's Jesus' first commands to his disciple. As you see this massive harvest, few workers, first response, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest for the glory of spreading the gospel to the whole world. And that looks different for a lot of people in different stages in their life. I mean, praying, I mean, this could look like praying that God would build up and send more missionaries into the harvest, that we as a church, as an individual, would be able to pour into and disciple people that would go into the harvest. This could also look like praying that God would use missionaries that are already in the harvest, that are already working in the harvest, praying for those who have been sent. And specifically for us at City Church is to pray for the three missionary families, our heroes, that we have had the privilege of serving, to pray for them, be in continual prayer for them. And the third is that praying that God would send you into the harvest, that God would give you boldness in your relationships, wisdom in your conversations, and a heart to see people in our city and around the world know the Lord. And then the third thing we can look, uh, practical application and look, um, is to act on the commission of Christ, to act on it. I mean, we are commanded to go and tell. As followers of Christ, our lives should be on the table for the Lord, right? Wherever he says to go, we go. And this is a very, very hard thing to live out, but I think it's something that we should strive to live out, to do our very best to live out. As a believer, we're not intended to just simply coast through life until we get to heaven. Jim Elliott, who probably many of you may be familiar with, was a famous missionary martyr to the native groups in Peru. And in a letter back to the United States to a family member, he mourned the fact that so many were, were uh, willing, uh, that so many were not willing to go into the mission field in his day. And he writes in a letter, he says, our young people are going into other fields because they don't, and he puts in quotes, feel called to the mission field. 
And then this next sentence is, we don't need a call, we need a kick in the pants. <laughs> I know that may sound like harsh or extreme, but God sends us all out in different ways to different places, and that's the truth. I mean, for some, it will mean like going into the workplace and being a light in a dark office or school, discipling, encouraging, telling coworkers, fellow students about Christ. For others, it may look like being a part of a church plant in an area that's difficult to reach with the gospel. And still for others, it'll mean going and living with unreached people groups around the world. But we all have the responsibility as Christians to tell others of Christ. I remember growing up and hearing, and I'm not really sure where I heard this. Um, I, don't, I don't know how I came to get this knowledge. I guess it's somewhere along the lines. Uh, but I remember hearing that at the dinner table, or when people are gathered together, there were two topics that were off limits, right? Two topics that were no-nos to bring up over a meal. Like if I brought it up, I would get kicked in the shins by an adult being like, zip it, dude, okay? And those two, you probably know, what I'm about to say are politics and religion. Those were two things that I was told never to bring up at a dinner table. And you know what's very ironic about that cultural rule? Think about your Thanksgiving lunch or dinner. I would make a pretty, pretty safe bet to say that one of those two topics came up. They always pop up <laughs> without fail. Politics and religion, especially during this season of the year where many will be going home for Christmas or opening your home to others to come and share a meal, it's inevitable that these type of conversations specifically about religion may arise. So I wonder, can we use these conversations for God's glory? In numerous times in Scripture, we see ordinary people telling of the work that God is doing in their life. We see it all over Scripture. Even in the Christmas story, right? The story that we're going to hear a million times, we're going to read, we're going to see, we're going to listen to, kind of engulfs our culture this month, is a come and see and then go and tell story in and of itself. In Luke 2, many of you are familiar with uh, this chunk of Scripture. It's uh, the birth of Christ. And starting in verse 8, Luke 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. When an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Look, I proclaim to you the good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. The angels appear to these shepherds in a field and tell of the news of a coming Savior. And they said, come and see. Come and, and see with your own eyes. So what did the shepherds in the fields do? Verse 15, the angels had left them and returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. They went and they saw with their own eyes what the angels had proclaimed, the Savior that has come over 400 years of silence and waiting. God had sent down the Messiah. And what was their response? They went. They couldn't help but tell everybody that they came across. I mean, what an awesome visual, something that we will see that we can talk to other people about of coming and seeing and then going and telling. So as I was reading this earlier, I just a thought came to my mind, like, what if we approached this season like the shepherds, seeing ourselves as sent? We see throughout the gospel that Jesus is something that we should share, right? It's not something that we keep to ourselves. Jesus is someone that we share, that we tell about. So what if in, instead of just going through those inevitable conversations, that this season brings, we intentionally see them as gospel opportunities. And I'm sure we'll all be around, or most of us will be around somebody who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord. So maybe during this Christmas season, we don't overlook the opportunities to share our stories, to share our testimony, to share the good news of Jesus. Because we as Christians are commanded to share the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. And oftentimes this can be hard maybe uncomfortable or iffy, tricky or challenging. Like, I understand that because I feel the same way a lot of times. Like, talking with family and friends about your faith in Christ is difficult, but we know that it's necessary. Many reasons why it's necessary. Two reasons that I think overarch the reasons why it's necessary to share God's love with others is, number one, we love God and we should strive to keep his commands, right? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. One command we were given by Jesus many times is to go and tell. So we love God, and so we want to keep that command. And the second is, we love others. And we believe that heaven and hell are real places where real people go, and that should move us and stir us, give us a sense of urgency to tell. We take evangelism Uh, very seriously in our youth ministry. We talk a lot about this subject on Wednesday night, and we practice it. We practice sharing our faith. Now, I I think that just like everything else in life, the gospel, or articulating the gospel, takes practice to be comfortable doing it. I mean, everything in life that we want to be good at, we practice, like basketball, sports, education, fishing, driving. Like, I'm a way better driver now than I was at 15, 16. I can drive stick shift too, which is pretty cool. But that's just because of practice. And one of the most helpful tools that we have been able to provide our students and others that gives them confidence in sharing their faith is an evangelism call, a tool called the three circles. And if you've attended our connect class, you're probably familiar with it. But the three circles is a practical tool that you can use when sharing your faith. It's a visual representation, excuse me, it's a visual representation of our lives as believers. And it's a great conversation guide when sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I've used this a lot of times at Chick-fil-A, like on a Chick-fil-A napkin, writing it out. I've seen other people do the same. I've seen people make videos online and share it on their social media platforms. What an awesome witness that is. Golly. And we believe that living life on mission really matters. And so this tool that we're going to walk through 
hence the board right there, has been a great blessing to our students. And I really hope that we can use, that we all can use this in future conversations, maybe even over Christmas when we're home for Christmas. So we're going to walk through it together. I'm going to draw it on the board. This has taken me back to my teacher days with this whiteboard. Um, but uh, so I, I would sit down with a student, with somebody, and just kind of say, hey, I want to share my story with you. I want to share how God has changed my life, how Jesus is working in my life. And I have this visual tool that will help both me and you be able to understand this. And so I'll say, okay, so the first thing that we know is that God has a perfect design for everything. That's pretty good. Yeah, I've been working on my handwriting. Uh, God has a perfect design for everything in life, right? In his creation, he made it and it was good. He has a perfect design for you individually, personally, family, friends, money, career, education, everything. And if we live according to God's perfect design, we live in this arena of God's blessing. But there's an issue. There's a problem. The problem is that all of us have a tendency to depart from God's perfect design. The Bible has a word for departing against God's perfect design, for leaving it, and that word is called sin. And we will all sin. We will all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. And when we sin, it takes us out of God's perfect design and we end up in a place of brokenness that is caused by the sin. probably all experienced brokenness before. doesn't feel good. It feels maybe emptiness or guilt or rejection, shame, regret. And when we get in this place of brokenness, like we try to fix it. We try to get out of this place of brokenness that sin makes us, uh, puts us in. <clears throat> and so we do a lot of things. Maybe we seek relationships. Uh, we seek uh, popularity or image that, you know, everything's good. Maybe we seek to make more money. Maybe uh, the pleasures of this world, uh, alcohol, drugs, sex, all types of different things we try to do to escape this state of brokenness. Sin that leads to brokenness really hurts. We don't have a brokenness problem. We have a sin problem. But this brokenness that we feel can ultimately be good for us because the brokenness brings to attention the need for change in our lives. And we figure out that the change that we need doesn't come from anything that we try to do to get out of the brokenness. It can't come from anything in us. It must come from somewhere else. And the great news is that the Bible tells us where that kind of change comes from. It comes from Jesus and the gospel. It comes from the good news, the story of Jesus, the Son of God coming down to earth, never departing from God's perfect design, not even once, never sinning one time, staying in God's perfect design. And even though he did that, he is still put on a cross and crucified. Even though he never departed God's design. 
that when Jesus is hanging on that cross, God does a miracle. He takes the sins of his people and he puts them on Jesus. And Jesus receives that punishment from God for our sins. And he, was, he died and was buried. But then three days later, and we know this to be true, God raises him from the dead. We celebrate that at Easter. And God does this, the Bible says, to prove Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus did what he said he was going to do to forgive his people's sins and heal the broken places in our lives. Right? This kind of rescue, this change that we need doesn't come from the inside. It comes from the gospel. So what is our response to that? Well, the Bible clearly says that we do two things in light of the gospel. We repent and believe. We repent from our sins. We not just stop doing them, but we turn from them and turn to Christ. And then we believe. We believe that Jesus is God's son, that his death on the cross washes away my sin. And we live that out. The Bible says that when we repent of our sins and believe in the gospel story, Jesus comes into our lives, transforms us, forgives us of our sin, and begins to heal us of our brokenness. Then the Bible says that God gives us an opportunity to then recover and pursue God's perfect design. Recover and to pursue. Looks like sanctification. This lifelong process of being molded to look more and more like Jesus. The awesome part about this is that we can recover and pursue God's design wherever you are. I mean, even today, if that's you. Not being ashamed of anything in the past or, you know, passing some kind of test or going through some kind of, no, we, today you can start pursuing God's design. And then as we do that, an aspect of recovering and pursuing is then we go. We go. Go back into a broken world and tell of the gospel. Tell of our story of how God has rescued us from our sins and live missionally in all that we do. And I wanted to share this with you this morning to hopefully give all of us in this room and watching online confidence in sharing your faith and maybe equip us with some, a practical tool that can be both personal to your story and also gospel-centered. We're going to have uh, uh, people up front down here at the end of the service. If you want to talk about what this looks like in your life or if you want more information, we have little more in-depth packets that have more scripture references that walk through the three circles. They're going to be at the Connect desk. Feel free to grab one for free. They're awesome, awesome tools. But evangelism is such an honor for us as Christians. Like telling others about the love of our Savior, it's a privilege. It's an extraordinary thing that God would use people like us in this room, like watching online, ordinary people to build his kingdom. Because we know that God uses our conversations God uses our relationships, our interactions to transform lives, to bring people out of death and to life.
And we get to play a part in this redemptive work. And this should humble us, but it also should pump us up a little bit. I mean, we serve an awesome God who includes us in this work. So I'd encourage everyone in this room or watching online, maybe not to waste interactions this season while you go someplace for Christmas to a a family's house or you have people come in. Maybe instead of seeing like meal conversations that may go off the rails sometimes or something that you just have to like grind your teeth and survive through, but to see them as opportunities, as opportunities to plant the seed like we talked about last week, a chance to share your story, walk through the three circles, articulate the gospel, because that's the best news any ear could ever hear. I wanted to close this morning with the quote from that book that I referenced earlier, God-Sized Vision. This is at the end of the book, and he's kind of concluding, you know, uh, uh, characteristics of, of um, revivals and how churches have played a big part in that. And at the end it says, revival, it's going to be on the screen too, revival, in fact, looks a lot like the church's normal activities as explained in Scripture. The revived church worships, prays, preaches, evangelizes, only they do so with the heightened sense and greater capacity to embody and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. This is their Christ-centered exuberance in worship and boldness in evangelism. It attracts critics, but it appeals to many others. A deeper understanding of God's holiness leads to repentance and humility that may seem uncomfortable at first, but ultimately foster meaningful community. City Church, let's strive to be a church that's exuberant in worship of our King and also bold in evangelism. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the many blessings that you give us. We pray that uh, as we enter into a season um, where we see the Christmas story everywhere, that we would be bold. We will be bold in uh, sharing the gospel, sharing our story. Maybe while we're at dinner and uh, you present opportunities that if you need to give us a kick in the pants, God, we pray that you would do that and we would respond. We thank you for the good news and what that means for us. We pray that we would be bold in sharing that with others. In your name I pray, amen.